Welcome to episode 123 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined for the 123rd time by the feisty Courtney Nguyen. One, two, three, four. Hi, Courtney. Hello, Ben. How are you doing? Feisty? It was yeah, like, it was a feist. feist joke. Oh, I see what you did there. You were the one singing that song right before we hit the record <laughs> button. So I, I thought understand you'd be that. better on the uptake. But I have been described as feisty, so when you described me as feisty... That's just what I assumed you meant, and not a, a a a reference to the great one of my favorite Canadians, Leslie Feist. So how's 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 uh, I want to say off season, but how is like time off treating you so far? How's post U.S. Open? It feels like a lot longer than a week ago that the U.S. Open ended. I feel yeah. I feel like I've been in an eleven year coma or something. I really do. It does feel the U.S. Open does feel very long ago. Yeah as I sit here today, a week later. But at the same time, I was talking to somebody about this yesterday, that like the weird thing about traveling as much, like for tournaments, like I counted it up and it was like something like 25, 26 weeks out of the year, like Mm -hmm. that I'm on the road. So more than half, which weirdly in my brain doesn't seem like that much to me because I'm like, oh, it's just half. But the week before and especially the week after, like those trips are like dead weeks. Like, it's impossible to be productive. Like, you're totally jet lagged. You just are transitioning back into being home, like, whatever. So I think that that was last week for me of just, like, I had a weekend finally where I just, like, watched Netflix and didn't change out of my pajamas and Mm -hmm. order delivery. And it was wonderful. And, yeah, so that was quite nice. So then this week I finally felt like, okay, now I'm back into the swing of things. And then I leave on Thursday to Wuhan. So it's like Wuhan, it, Wuhan to the Wu. So it's weird. Like it's it, you just never get the rhythm. But which is a very different situation than you have been. I know. I'm sort of done for the season. I think I'm leaving it open to take shutting a, it down to take a late wild card somewhere. I might. I might. I might scale down to the challenger level or something for a week. Um, we'll see. Could be interesting. Yeah, but it, I'm, I'm looking forward to having some semi hibernation nesting time. But in the meantime, there was all sorts of tennis. Tennis itself doesn't stop. This damn thing just keeps going. <laughs> this Rube Goldberg infinite motion Mobius contraption that is worldwide tennis. And there was like theoretically relevant tennis, I guess, last weekend, if you want to call oh, Davis Cup definitely. That. Yeah, sure. In Davis Cup, we'll start with that. Great Britain beat Australia uh, 3-1 uh, with Andy Murray winning... Both singles and doubles with brother Jamie. Uh, they will play in the final in Belgium, uh, a country who hadn't made the Davis Cup final in 111 years for good reason, uh, who got through a really broken draw, uh, beating Argentina 3-2 on the final day with Steve Darcis coming up big, which sets up a Britain-Belgium Davis Cup final for late November. I think Britain's going to win. This whole year in Davis Cup has been strange. Your thoughts and reflections, Courtney? It's, you know, it's one of those funny situations. It's, you know, it's not, it's not unlike the U.S. Open, where if Britain wins and Andy Murray wins Davis Cup, little will be remembered or criticized of the season. 
you know, like the result will kind of bootstrap the entire Davis Cup season and be like, yeah, wasn't that fun? Like Andy Murray won Davis Cup. Whoop-de-doo. Yeah, and all the four big, go nuts. All four big four guys would have then won it at some point. Exactly. And yeah. that's great. And, you know, whatever. And so it will ignore, once again, something that Ben and I touch on every time that Davis Cup or Fed Cup rolls around, that it's broken. The competition is broken. I mean, what is it? what does it mean that Andy Murray won you know, Davis Cup when the, the draws were as weird as they were, the players, I mean, Spain's been relegated, you know, is out of there. It's just kind of super odd. So yeah. if Andy wins it, not unlike when if Serena were to have won the U.S. Open, people would have been like, oh, the U.S. Open was great. Right. Because like this thing that seems to have historical or um, emotional resonance happened. But should Belgium come through and win it or should you know, bless Flavia Panetta, but Flavia Panetta come through and win it or any other player were to beat Serena in that final, let's say theoretically, then you start to dissect what happened over the course of the competition uh, with a much more microscopic uh, eye. And and I think that that's when you reveal some of the issues um, that are inherent in the way that Davis Cup has been organized and the way that it interacts or does not interact uh, with the ATP tour and same goes for Fed Cup. Yeah, no, I totally agree. This is, and we talk about this kind of every time Davis Cup rolls around on the calendar, which is means we do it about quarterly because Davis Cup is always like some sort of weird incremental tax payment. <laughs> it, Rafael Nadal put it really well uh, in Indian Wells talking about how it's basically a little bit like the Australian Open back in the days when nobody went there or like only a handful of people went there. And so yeah, it counts as a grand slam, but if you actually look at it, what is it really? And he values the whole thing. And this is to say nothing particularly against Andy Murray. I mean, he's undefeated this year in Davis Cup. He's played well. Uh, Britain, he and Jamie have played well in doubles together. Uh, he's been handling some pretty heavy duty for that. And uh, like I said, I think they're going to beat Belgium. I'd be surprised if they didn't. I don't know in what scenario. I guess if, if Golfan can beat Murray, uh, yep. that's what they have. That's their only route to victory for Belgium. Uh-huh. Well, and also doubles. No, they can't. They have no doubles players. I know, but I'm just saying anything can happen in doubles. And I've seen Jamie Murray pull off some shockers <laughs> um, alongside. And Andy Murray has been also there watching Jamie Murray pull in, uh, throw in some shockers. So, but if they, I mean, if they steal the du- the doubles point, that's massive. Yeah, but I don't. That flips the whole tie on its head. But yeah, no, I I totally agree with you. I mean, it, it's. And the th- and again, this always goes back to this whole thing of like, just because I say that the Davis Cup is broken doesn't mean I don't enjoy it. Right. Like, I personally enjoy it and I think it's great. And I get personal satisfaction out of watching Davis Cup and, you know, watching these guys compete for their country and all these sorts of things doesn't mean that, like, as an entity, it is losing value. Yeah. And I think that's with what, every year. Yeah, that's, that's the phrase Chris Clary wrote a column about. They're having an ITF president election. Uh, coming up soon, where a bunch of people are running to replace Francesco Ricci Bidi, and just the people were talking about sort of the need to maximize Davis Cup. Like Davis Cup is fine, but it's just yeah. so below what its potential could be in terms of being a relevant thing. And maybe that's maybe that's okay. Maybe Davis Cup is in some ways obsolete. I mean, to sort of go broader think piece about this, you talk, you look at like the crowd at Federer Isner for example, at the U.S. Open or Isner Malfis or any American crowd there is against Sean Isner, really. And you see that tennis and nationalism don't necessarily go hand in hand. It's not a sport that I don't think people really see as like warriors stepping into battle to represent their country in a way other sports work. And 
and that's okay. I think it's okay that Davis Cup is not the king of the sport. And that says something maybe positive about tennis in some way, that we can get together in this sort of denationalized context and be gentlemen or gentlewomen, whatever, and just respect everybody as individuals for the individual path they blaze into the sport. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely that aspect of it, of of just like, why do we have to value Davis Cup? Why do we have to value Fed Cup? If you value it, you value it. And if you don't, you don't. And, you know, some players love playing for their countries. Some players absolutely hate that pressure. That doesn't make them any lesser of competitors or human beings. Like, whereas, like, it could be completely flipped. Like, a player is an absolute uh, nobody on tour, but then they put on, you know, the Davis Cup kit and they're all of a sudden, like, an absolute weekend warrior and, you know, go through and win, like, match after match after match. And, and James Ward, yeah, yeah, James Was. Ward, or, or arguably like a Burlok, like yeah. somebody who's like had. I mean, he's kind of an incredible Argentinian, like Davis Cup hero at this point, single-handedly carrying that team in a lot of ways. But, um, you know, on the tour, do you does it really does he really make a dent? Not particularly. Um, and so yeah, it, and I guess that's kind of the problem at the end of the day is like you just everybody feels about fed cup or davis cup the way that they feel about it and because there isn't a universal you know like with the slams slams are important slams are the tent poles of the season slams are what matters we all agree on this so therefore slams matter but if everybody has like a different like "Eh, i think it's important i don't think it's important like i think it's important this year oh look i lost i don't think it's important anymore like oh you know when when it fluctuates like that violently Like, how can you really take it seriously? You know, it's just like a nice competition. It's like Hopman Cup over the course of a year. Yeah. Speaking of Hopman Cup, sidebar, what is going on with Hopman Cup? I don't know. That, that made me sad. This announcement they had, I guess, with since we did our last show, um, that Hopman Cup, we don't need to go too deep into this, but it's having uh, two Australian teams, Australia Green and Australia Gold. And they're going to be uh, in separate groups of the round robin. I assume, I'm guessing, because they knew they could get Hewitt. Hewitt's already been announced. And they're going to get one of Kyrgios or Kokonakis and didn't want to turn one of them down, or Tomic or something. And so they just decided that was a way to do it, to have two Australian teams. But it puts it totally, totally in the exosphere of of tennis. Uh, not exosphere, I think, is some sort of, you know, meteorological word. But uh, <laughs> in terms of exhibition range of events when they do that so that's a little bit sad to see because i would have liked hopman to possibly get a little bit more legit would have been fine but anyway yeah davis cup i agree and the olympics have gone the opposite direction i don't know if that's been a replacement or not but you talk about back when olympics got reintroduced or tennis got reintroduced to the olympics in like 1988 uh not everybody showed up and even 92 was a little bit partial and now it's like everybody goes and it's a totally big thing that is the maybe the international or the nationalistic competition in tennis that matters most yeah i mean i the the change in tone and tenor of the olymp of tennis in the olympics has been probably the most drastic change in the sport over the last like 20 years probably that, you know what i mean like yeah, that i would say and I, I think the grand slams have gotten even more important yeah but that, totally agree like both of those two things and so in and maybe that's because you know there if you think about it as like this um there's a finite amount that we can possibly care like that human beings can care about a thing yeah and you think about that pie and basically that pie the slice of that pie that davis cup and fed cup took up used to be much bigger and now it's much smaller and that's been replaced by you know people care a little bit more about the majors and people care a little bit more about the olympics and already now i mean we're what uh, 
seven eight months out of the olympics and people are already talking about yeah more than that but like people are already talking about um qualification scenarios teams things like that people are kind of already excited about it people have already qualified because i mean they're talking they take points from 12 months you know like everything else 52 week cycle so i think belinda benchich is already qualified when she won canada yeah she made it to the olympics so that's cool for her and yeah we'll see those stories uh continue to unfold any other thoughts on Davis Cup before we move on? Andy Murray. Does this change his legacy at all if he single-handedly Sherpas Great Britain to a Davis Cup title? Um, I mean, I'll talk about that once he actually does it. I was more referring to just the like whether it's going to be controversy or not controversy. Oh, right. The yeah. situation surrounding his participation, yeah. the World Tour Finals, uh, season-ending World Tour Finals. Andy Murray told the BBC in an interview that uh, after helping obviously the Brits clinch their spot into the final that should Belgium who is hosting the, uh, the, the final uh, put the, the, the tie on clay that he would genuinely consider skipping the ATP world tour finals, the season ending championships in order to give his body more time to train on clay and acclimate because let's face it, Andy Murray probably thinks that he has a better chance of winning Davis cup than winning the world tour finals. As he should. Um, a tournament that he's never made the final of um, and has fallen in the round Robin quite a few times. So yeah, so that was a comment that he made to the BBC. Chris Kermode, who was asked to comment on it, basically reiterated the ATP rule book saying that, you know, the ATP World Tour Finals is a mandatory event for players who qualify. And so we fully expect Andy Murray to be there because he has qualified, barring any like, you know, legitimate injury or like whatever like that. So it's caused this whole thing of like, is he going to play? Is he not going to play? Oh, the hand wringing. I kind of don't really understand the hand wringing about Andy Murray pl- not playing the World Tour Finals. Like the ATP's hand wringing? Not the ATP's, like the fan hand wringing. I don't know. Like, I don't, or press. I don't know who's doing the hand wringing, but there seems to be this like, oh my gosh, Andy Murray might not play the World Tour Finals. And like, from my perspective, I'm like, so? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, you're going to have Roger. You're going to have Novak. No, but you understand he's the hometown. He's going to, but he's going to go do like promotional work and like, he's going to, it's not like he's going to completely bail out on the thing, but like, it's, I don't really think it's that big of a deal if Andy Murray doesn't play the world tour finals, like for the tournament or for the event. And it's not like the crowd roots for him against Federer anyway. Right. Exactly. When he plays Roger, they vote for Roger anyway. Like they yeah. have their home crown guy and their hometown guy is, is from Basel, Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of weird. I thought. But with respect to like him, whether or not he will play the World Tour Finals or not, first of all, I don't think that Chris Kermode's statement that was made just basically where he reiterated the rule that the tournament is obviously mandatory should you qualify is like, ooh, the ATP threatens or anything. It's first of all, if you don't play, if you qualify for the thing for the tournament, the ATP World Tour Finals, yeah. and you don't play it, and you just asked to show up and do promotional uh, activities, support the event, do press conferences, blah, blah, blah. You know, Andy Murray is going to do that anyway. Secondly, like the sanctions, basically, if you don't, if you're, if you qualify and you don't participate, like then you're considered like not in good standing with like the ATP. And what does that mean? It means that you're not eligible for, no, you're not eligible for the bonus. You're not eligible for main draws in 2016. Yeah, I saw that clause. I was like, what does that mean? Yeah, and then you're not eligible for a year of credit towards the ATP pension program. Um, You guys, there's no way the ATP is going to stop Andy Murray from playing in 2016. Like, that is just not a, a, a penalty that they will actually enforce. Right. There's no fucking way. 
None. None whatsoever. So what I don't know. I just kind of feel like everybody's freaking out for no reason. <laughs> I do understand ATP's grandstanding or whatever you want to call it, if you can even call it that. Because this is obviously a huge event for them. Of we course. About before with the with the women's side more. I mean, a huge amount of the tours revenues come from these championships because they are the events that the tours themselves own. Uh, they're the only ones on tour really that is a, the, all the you know receipts or box office whatever you want to call it goes to the tours so they don't want to see a hit there if they lose Andy Murray um, it will be interesting though I, I totally understand I first of all think that any fines he gets the, w, the LTA would immediately reimburse for like in a totally in a immediate heartbeat so I don't think he's sure about that <laughs> he gets banned from playing main draws that's just weird I don't know what that would even mean <laughs> um but that, he, could, he could go be a coach on the WTA for a year he wouldn't mind I mean um, I just do I do love the idea of like Andy Murray if he does this would be they the ATP would be within their rights within the rule book to ban him from 2016 main draws but Nick Kyrgios can still play yeah sure <laughs> well we don't that's know it's just that's just not a decision that the ATP is going to actually make. It's just never going to happen in like the grand scheme of things. We don't know what Nick Kyrgios is going to say and do on court in the next few months. That's one storyline to look at for the fall is Nick Kyrgios' on-court behavior. On and yet, sure, but at the same time, like Nick Kyrgios is not going to be banned from participating in the entire 2016 season. Not even sure. if Nick Kyrgios like, decapitates a – well, no. But <laughs> if, they, if Nick Kyrgios does something mega stupid and racks up the fines and triggers the the suspension, he's done for, th- what, three months? Uh, six, maybe? Or six three? Months? Something, Definitely know, not a like, year. Yeah. Definitely not a year. No. So, yeah, when you talk about proportionality, it's not like the ATP would just never do anything. I'm don't, sorry. Don't you but you can of... – but I, under, I agree with you, though. I totally understand, like, the grandstanding. You have to say it. Right. But we can also talk about the pragmatic effect of like what's going to actually go on behind the scenes. And yeah, Chris Kermode of Britain is not going to sit there and ban Andy Murray from the 2016 season or like lay down the heavy hammer on him if he were to choose to skip the World Tour finals due to a leg injury. It, yeah, if he cites an injury, and he will cite some sort of injury, I'm sure. Right. He's not going to just pull out of it. I mean, yeah. he'll cite something. He's not going to cite Davis Cup. And Roger Federer had the precedent, did pull out of the World Tour final. He was obviously hurting, but partially with Davis Cup looking ahead. And it's a weird situation, which you haven't seen much of in late years, where Davis Cup slash Fed Cup ever wins, quote unquote, over a tour event in a player's mind in priority. So I'm sure Davis Cup would give him a nice fruit basket. But I do think it'd be so, it's not that it will ever happen, but imagine Andy Murray getting banned for a year and like spending the year like coaching Laura Robson. <laughs> And love Naomi it. Brody together or something. I don't know. Love it. Love it. It'd be pretty tremendous. Let's do that. It would be pretty great. Or if he like just kind of decided that he just wanted to like be a dog walker. Yeah. Or he's, like he's going to go on paternity leave, right? Oh, that too. Yeah. Maybe he's, you know what? Maybe he's a lot smarter than we all give him credit for. And he has this all planned out. There you go. He's like, please ban me. Please. Yeah. Yeah. Smart. One of the stories that broke since all the Davis Cup stuff wound down over the weekend just happened Tuesday morning. It was Stacey Allister, the chief executive of the WTA, announcing that she was stepping down from her post, uh, effective pretty soon, effective in 10 days in early October. Courtney, I guess just your first reaction to this news. And it, it, I think it's we were talking before, it's a little too early, I think, to sort of process Stacey's legacy or whatever, but just your impressions on the news, I guess. 
Yeah, no, I mean, it definitely came as um, a surprise to me. I found out when everybody else found out, <laughs> um, waking up and checking my email um, and stuff like that and be like, oh, wow, okay. Um, and yeah, the, the the step down is uh, effective October 2nd, which is coming up pretty pretty quickly. Yeah, um, Yeah, I think it, I totally agree. I mean, I think it's going to take a little bit of time to really kind of uh, put into context um, Stacey's legacy um, at the WTA. I mean, I've only been inside the WTA for about two months, month and a half. And so I had very little interaction with her. And But she's always been incredibly nice to me when I was uh, a freelancer, um, very personable, chatty, easy person to talk to. And uh, so I always appreciated that. Um, and that didn't change when I went inside. In fact, I mean, I'll tell one Stacy story, which was that the morning of the semifinals, the crazy women's semifinal day, um, the semifinals were starting at 11 and I was set to live blog them. And I got up early and, you know, it takes about 35 to like an hour to get for the bus to get to site. Yeah. Huge range. So, yeah. yeah. It's a huge range. You just don't know what's going to happen. So I got up and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go downstairs and I'll wait for the 9am shuttle. And, you know, I'll have two hours. It's got to be a good window. I get down there. It's nine o'clock. It's 915. It's 930. There's no shuttle. And I'm, you know, asking the lady, like, what's going on? She's like, yeah, there's traffic. Like, you know, the 930 didn't show up, blah, blah, blah. So I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. Chris Clary shows up. He's waiting for the shuttle, too. We debate whether we should ride the subway to get to site. And I was just like, the minute that I leave to walk to the subway i know that that bus is going to show up exactly. like that's just going to be my luck you know and i'm so vested and i kept waiting and it started and it got to about 10 15 and 10 20 and there was still no shuttle and play was set to start at 11 and stacy comes out of the hotel and she's like hey and i'm like hi and she's like what are you doing i'm like yeah i'm like waiting for the shuttle i've been here since nine and it hasn't come and she's like hmm and she like obviously has a car like a driver and so she like kind of like gets into the car with the other people and she kind of counts out the seats and she's like, Courtney, come on. So like, she, like I was like, okay. So that was Stacey. a pretty good, that was a very short, but very accurate Stacey impression. Yeah. That was a very like clipped like, voice. Yeah. Right? yeah. Very, very clipped and very like, let's go. I was like, oh, okay. So hopped in and got to site uh, before the matches started and just right, like right at like 11 o'clock as they were like about to set to set to walk out and that was very nice of her and she didn't have to do it. And that was kind of Stacy. That was like my last interaction I think I had with Stacy. But yeah, in terms of the legacy, I mean, the things that are always going to stand out are the push into Asia. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and uh, the growth of, of you know, starting a, a Beijing office there in 2008 and the number of tournaments that have just exploded into Asia, bringing the, the finals into Singapore and things like that. And that's, um, I think, why I was saying it's a little too early to judge her legacy yet. You know, yeah, I think I think for, because a lot of the things that Stacey did or her missions were things that were sort of long term moves. So I don't think you can accept, uh, assess quite yet the success or failure of WT Asia, as it's called, um, as her era was sort of known or her regime um, with its Asia centric growth strategy um, until you see what happens in, you know, 10, 15 years. Like if Asia does explode and become a huge pillar and growth spot for women's tennis or if it completely disappears and there's was no yeah. interest a few years after lean off we don't know yet yeah. so it's, it's a little bit hard to grade stacy on that too same thing with this big tv deal which was a rather sort of signature moment the massive contract would perform that was worth you know several like 500 million dollars something like that over 
a long course of time and that distribution strategy. We don't know how that's going to work out yet, if there will be people buying all this product once it's getting distributed or not. So I think it's just, I think she her grade, I think it's, it kind of has to be for anybody, but especially for her, it's a little bit of an incomplete. I mean, you can see what the tour has done in the last, during her time, which I think has generally been pretty good. Um, obviously, she can't control results. You can't blame her for like 2011 when you have four different players winning slams and a fifth slamless number one in Wozniacki. I'm like, oh, that's so bad. Like, that's not Stacey's fault. Uh, <laughs> but it's not. Sorry. But, um, you, but you can say, like, did they capitalize well enough on Serena's Grand Slam bid and all that attention? I think for the most part, women's tennis did really capitalize on that spotlight well. You can say, oh, did she not get a title sponsor for the tour as there had been in years past through a major sponsor? And that's true. So far, there hasn't been one in a few years. And But is that so serious? Are more sports going that direction? I don't know. And those are things you can create her on now. But I think really with how Stacey positioned herself and how she positioned the tour, uh, it's going to be something that's better assessed, I think, in five years or so, at least. Yeah, I think I think that's actually, I mean, I think that's totally fair. I mean, I you look at Larry Scott, um, Stacey Allister's predecessor, um, and his big legacy was the roadmap, right? And mm-hmm. the, well, there are two things: was the the roadmap redesign of the schedule, the the schedule and the calendar. Um, and then on top of that, uh, his big play was the Middle East. He also was at the helm during uh, when they got equal pay at Wimbledon, which was exactly WTA achievement then. Yeah, for sure. And so with respect to the the Middle East and the big play there and the repercussions of that, I mean, it was, you know, you had the Shahar Pair incident yep. um, there were, and, you know, the WT championships were moved to 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 Doha um, and did the Middle Eastern gambit pay off? Well, yes and no. Right. I mean, have we seen the explosion of tennis and tournaments there? Probably not. Uh, but that big gamble of like taking the money and taking the championships to the Middle East helped pave the way for, you know, a bigger, probably WTA coffer set of coffers, right? There was just more money in the bank for the WTA after that Middle Eastern deal that then allowed them to, you know, expand their digital team, expand yeah. content teams, uh, build out, right. Uh, and invest in themselves. And, you know, maybe you don't have that perform deal or this Singapore deal, which was massive as well, Unless you make that deal. I don't know. It's it's so hard to kind of figure out, like, no, and that's, and was that's... it a success or not a success? And that was, like, what, like, 10 years, oh, nearly 10 years ago, eight years ago now. So with, yeah. yeah, with this whole move into China, like, it's still, it's still tough to say. I mean, it, 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 it's obviously hard. But, I mean, I do think that, like, you do have to recognize, too, like, under Stacey, um, the prize money issues. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Larry Scott had kind of the more seminal milestone Right of being able to be at the helm when 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 uh, Wimbledon um, signed up for for equal prize money, mm-hmm. but um, I mean the prize money has just increased yeah. um, under Stacey. I saw some crazy stat today that um, it took the WTA forty years to get to the um, hundred million dollar prize money mark, mm-hmm. um, and since that and that was in two thousand and eight. I think they I want to say that they hit it. They're now at one hundred thirty million. That's pretty just over the last like seven years, you know, so and a lot of that a lot of that has been slam oriented, slam oriented. And also that was more of an ATP push, honestly, that the WTA was able to piggyback on. Exactly. For sure. And with to no fault of their own. I mean, it's not their fault that the guys were the ones using all their chips in that part of the battle. And the women had these deals in place for equal prize money, a lot of places. And also, I know you've noted before, Courtney, that the WTA 
made a point to match all of the World Tour Finals prize money. Yeah. Uh, ATP has in London at Singapore now. Um, so that is equal across the board. And obviously there are still places, a lot of tour events where the tour prize money isn't equal. Uh, for as much as we talk about how it's equal to the slams and only sport with equal pay, I mean, there's still a, a decent sized pay gap in tennis and a decent sized popularity disparity in, in men's and women's tennis. That's why it was big news when the women's final sold out for the first time ever before the men this year at the U.S. Open because it hasn't happened before. Um, so those things, obviously, there's still growth that can be achieved and stuff, but the directionality, I think, generally is pretty good. And I don't think, more importantly, I don't think Stacy that we can think of did anything to really derail it you know she maybe didn't she's done things that we don't know where they'll pay off yet in terms of asia but not any major missteps of her administration that i can think of really right i mean i and i think that she and you know there are definitely some swings that she took that um i always was like wow she didn't have to do that but that was like very you know, like how quickly she came out, like in support of like uh, and and like um, shouting down Shamil Tarpashev yeah. with respect yeah. to his comments and Sakovsky um, more recently, more recently uh, the ATP and Kyrgios. You know, like she she's like stood up for her players in a way that I've always kind of found quite admirable because even from just a PR perspective, sometimes like, you know, and I say this like not with my WTA hat on, but with my old freelancer hat on, because like this is what I was thinking back then was I was like, man, from a PR perspective, you really didn't have to do that. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like that's that, I don't know. Like, I don't know where that is, but um, but she always felt like you always kind of felt like if you came at any of the like the, the WTA girls like Stacy would like fight back she's, you a mama, know? Like, she's a mama bear she really she's is. a total mama bear and um and so and 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 yeah so i thought that that was interesting um I, I will, and she also under her was it under her that sophia got created or was that yep. scott yeah so or i guess it was bali maybe before then scott's time but, yeah um anyway she's pushed for zhuhai she's done different the rising stars competition even um, just thinking about like those you know, are the things... world the World Cup of Tennis thing that yeah. she kind of wanted to like create as a yeah I don't know if that's going to happen but I mean you have to give her credit because she she was trying to think outside the box and she was I mean she like the WTA created Tournament of Champions and then now Zhuhai and now the ATP is looking to do the same sort of sort of thing or like well, you know Rising Stars yeah yeah they're just Rising Stars Invitational I've talked to um, ATP players who want like John Isner I talked to about this who wants mm-hmm. like wishes because he's always been in that sort of uh 10 through 15 range of the rankings a lot of times at year end like he would love like a zhuhai or a sophia or something where he could go and play again get paid you know, get paid you know? and, and get it <laughs> and get an, an extra good ranking points there and stuff like that i mean yeah. those are things for which stacy deserves credit i mean like the asia push obviously sometimes the optics of the stands being empty is not always ideal i and people mark on that that's totally fair to remark on uh but money is there you know and that's bolstering other events. And so following money instead of fans, that's one trade-off she's had, um, which some people have objected to if they want to, you know, moving toward more away from Europe towards Asia. That's a fair critique if you want it there. But overall, I think definitely a pretty solid leadership. And I'll be curious to see, I can't imagine they would go for somebody totally radical next. You know, I don't, I don't see, I'd be surprised if WTA went for a total course change type leader. What would Next. that even look like? Like, I genuinely am asking. I'm, I, I'm, I, I don't know, I mean, I don't like, know what even crazy. a radical course I mean, like, change would look like. Something crazy, like, I, this like never John happened. McEnroe? <laughs> <laughs> that would be atrocious. Um, no, but like, like a, I don't know, like some sort of Mark Cuban or even like Mark Ein type person who's like a sort of more of like a, 
outside the box thinker type in sports. Yeah. And I think I think they don't I don't think WTA needs that. I think WTA is a top women's sports um keep for a reason. And a lot of that's just how great their product is. It's not even an organizational thing. Women's tennis is just awesome and uh good luck to whoever gets it next, I guess. Good luck, future boss. <laughs> don't fire Courtney. <laughs> Please don't fire me. <laughs> Stacy was crazy enough to green light this whole operation in the first place. <laughs> it, w- it would have been it w- kind of a remarkably short run at the next first order, <laughs> first order of business. <laughs> first order of business course correction. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. So speaking of WTA stuff, we got a question from Dennis T M D C, who asks, "What's up with the selection of rising stars for Singapore? Surely there are some better options." I guess, and this, Courtney, I know you feel lots of stuff about this and your new official job is WTA answer giver. <laughs> Talk about, I guess, the, how the ballot come together for the Rising Stars. Sure. So the Rising Stars Invitational is an invitational tournament decided and the four players that are going to play there are completely decided by by fan voting, online fan voting. And it takes place during the WTA finals in Singapore. Just the, and yeah. yeah, and so... Um, there's two players that come from the rest of the world, two players from Asia Pacific and the standards for deciding which players are eligible um, differ because obviously within Asia Pacific, the standards did have to be a little bit more lax because they're, going to be players who are not as high ranked or have not achieved a level of success that some of the players in the rest of the world category have already achieved. So, um, so that's kind of like generally how the, the competition is broken down. And in terms of, cause I know that there's a lot of people who are like, how come Benchich isn't on that list? How come Kanyu's not on that list? Like all of these like WTA rising stars and Bouchard, even, I've seen. Bouchard or Madison keys, um, you know, because a WTA rising star, the technical definition is like a 23 and under player who has shown promise of being like a future star, which there are like tons of players who we would consider to be WTA rising stars who are not part of the voting um, for w- the WTA Rising Stars Invitational. And so the reason why is because, so in, basically you have to qualify, the, the qualifying criteria is not super difficult, but one of the, the little kind of pieces of small print that I tried to make clear in the piece that I wrote for WTA Insider when I explained the competition is, in addition to the basic qualifying criteria, if you opt to make yourself available for this. In other words, if you throw your hat into the ring and say, yes, I want to participate in this, if the fans vote me into it, you can't enter Moscow and you can't enter Luxembourg. Mm -hmm. Both of those tournaments take place the week before the WTA finals. In other words, we need you in Singapore. (laughs) So anybody who is in those entry lists is not on the ballot. Correct. Yeah. Exactly. Or if you even just want to play it, like maybe you didn't get direct entry, but you'd be willing to play qualies to get in, whatever it is. Like if you if you want to play those two tournaments, then you can't be a rising star. Now, you can understand that if you're a player who is, I don't know, like take like a Christina Modenovic. Well, no, because she's probably going to be in doubles, right? Did she? Anyways, but in the running, yeah. Yeah, she's in the running to qualify in doubles, but let's say that she wasn't and she's a singles player and I think she's 23 and under. So I think that she would have qualified satisfied the qualification criteria but like you're you don't get any rankings points playing for the wta invitational whereas obviously you get ranking points if you played moscow or luxembourg so if you're like on the cusp of like possibly getting like a australian open seed it's probably not like an attractive option 
to forego ranking points to it, play it, it's invitational. A, it's a little you know? bit like it's a little bit frivolous. I mean, like players have a lot of fun with it. You get a free trip to Singapore. Right. You get to do sorts of you know red carpety stuff and you know be a bit of a thing for those weeks. But it's it's like any exhibition when you're talking about you know priorities. Yeah. Um. And so you get the fun of that, some money from it for sure too. Mm-hmm. A free trip. Um. You get this sort of accolade of being voted a rising star and winning a popularity contest. That's a nice ego boost for sure. Um. But yeah, you don't get that, and you get and you do get some competitive matches because the players, at least that I saw there, were as WTA players tend to. They play exhibitions a lot harder than the guys do, especially when there's something sort of quote unquote on the line there, um, like Hopman Cup. Even the girls always play a lot harder than the guys. It seems like in the singles. So, but otherwise, you don't get any points. You don't get any rankings. And I bet I'm guessing like coaches probably push for tournaments, and like agents probably push for Singapore Rising Stars based on where the yeah. trade off happens. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just kind of a basic explanation. I mean, like, I know that it's incredibly confusing and you see, you know, you get the list and you expect to see certain players and you don't see those players and you're like, what the heck? Like, what kind of like, you know, competition is this? But that's why, I mean, you know, the player has to opt into it and the player has to want to play it. And, you know, you'll see that as we get closer to kind of Singapore Zhuhai as well. I mean, there are players, if you, if you ask a player right now, that's ranked between 12 and 25, whether or not, they um are looking forward to playing Zhuhai, they will look at you like you've just slapped them in the face. Yeah. <laughs> because to them they will they they're, you know, like I because I think somebody did ask Victoria Azarenka this at the US Open after she lost to Halep. And Azarenka was like, Are you saying that I can't qualify for Singapore? And mathematically it's it's kind of a long shot a for long her to shot qualify for Singapore. for Singapore. But it's like they don't want it. They are just not ready to talk about not playing Singapore because Singapore is kind of the goal, you know? And it's interesting so, that actually when Wozniacki last year entered the marathon, she yeah. wouldn't have been able to play it if she'd been in Sofia or she wouldn't have been able to do both. Um, and, but she was like, no, she was banking on her talent and trying to play and say, I'm going to qualify for Singapore. I always planned on that. But like, she was like 17 in the race or something when she mm-hmm. made this decision. Um, yeah. So players don't want to bank on that, but that, that gets me to actually to a different question. I think we can sort of slide into here mentioning Elite Trophy Zhuhai. This question, this question from Rex Lamb, who asks us, um, who do you want to see in Singapore? And the follow-up question to that is, can we actually have a better tournament in Zhuhai than Singapore, both in terms of star power and competitiveness? Question mark, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And this is the first time that Zhuhai is a different format than Sophia was. Um, in terms of entry, it's just going to be pretty much strictly nine through nineteen in the rankings, plus a wild card. Is that I right? Think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, can Zhuhai be better than Singapore? And what even yeah. is Zhuhai? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think it it could. I mean, the field could be one of those like fields where if you're like a weekly WTA watcher, like these are the players that you're constantly kind of like excited to see. You yeah. know, because if you look at the rankings right now i mean muguruza is at number 10 so if the season were to end now muguruza and uh plishkova would be uh the alternates into singapore um and then after that you're talking about redvanska bencic bachinski wozniaki keys aranis fidelina azarenka vinci makarova venus is at 21 ivanovich at 22 pekovic at 23 i mean 
those are, I mean, you know, JJ at 24, like these are all players that people like, you know, like these are, these are fan favorites and it would be kind of fun to see them all like go head to head um, in Zhuhai. And, you know, there's, there's obviously going to be, you know, whether players, yeah, like want to play it, whether they opt into it, whether they buy into the kind of format or whatever it is, or whether they just are like burnt out at the end of the season and injuries kind of pick up, you know, that'll always be an issue because, Especially like even when you talk about Singapore, which if the season were to end today, the, the field would be Serena, Simona, uh, Maria, Petra, Lucy, Flavia, uh, Angelique Kerber, and Carla. Yeah. Um, and the numbers are so tight with within especially like Kerber and Suarezavaro, Pliskova, Muguruza, the, the alternates, that they, these players could be like we might not know who the field is until moscow yeah no totally which it's, is like it's be kind, the closest. Of a, kind of a nightmare if you're if you work for the wta a little bit but, but it'll be fun for fans who, yeah but it could be fun for fans and things like that but it's you know the race is going to heat up but it's it's kind of crazy i don't know i mean you you weigh in on it because everybody probably thinks that i'm shilling so go well, for no, it <laughs> I, I do i do totally agree with you that it's a fun group of players uh questions will be we haven't seen it before but there are a lot of points and decent amount of money at stake the question with motivation. Are people too tired to summon up great matches? I'm willing to bet we'll see more than one alternate come into the Zhuhai draw at some point. People just being over it um, or having some sort of nagging injury they don't want to push for Zhuhai. We'll see. I think on paper it could work out really well. Um, I bet it'd be a really fun event to go to as a fan. If you happen to live in Zhuhai, you'll it'll be great. Or Hong Kong. Or Hong just, Kong. It's or, not that far from Hong Kong. It's just across the water from Macau. Or, or if you're a WTA superfan who wanted to make like a double trip out of Singapore and Zhuhai. Hardcore, hardcore. That'd be, that'd be super hardcore, but you could do it. Um, especially like Aussies. I know a bunch of Aussies went to Singapore last year as fans because mm-hmm. it was relatively close for them by their standards. Like only a seven hour flight. So, so close. Um, yeah, no, it, it could be interesting, but it's tough to know beforehand. And like I said, with like, especially with ambiance and crowds and China uncertainty on that, we don't know what kind of atmosphere they'll have in Zhuhai at all. So, uh, but I remember being impressed by their presentation at Singapore last year. And whoever, like, the mayor, or not the mayor, but, like, somebody from, like, the Zhuhai government came, some lady. Yeah, the she, lady was really she, good. She had her, like, she had her shit impressively together. Yeah. So, uh, good for Zhuhai. On the, <laughs> that lady's running things, and it'll be a good <laughs> event, because she was impressive. Let's see. Another question. Oh, uh, speaking of players who have already qualified for Singapore, we got a question from Robert Silverstein about Serena, who asks, if you're Serena, how do you approach the rest of the season? Uh, Serena is the only top 20 player not entered in Wuhan after Maria Sharapova took a, a surprising late wild card. I did not see that one coming, really, with her injury concerns, but she's trying to post up for for Wuhan. Uh, Serena, I think, probably, it's gonna. if I'm Serena, I'm taking like a long nap and maybe waking up for Singapore. Setting my alarm for Singapore, and if I have to hit the snooze button and miss it, like it's kind of okay. I think with everything she's been through, um, expectations and goals for the rest of 2015 have to be remarkably low. Is that fair? Or do you think that she's going to be motivated to do something in Beijing or something? Well, considering that I was the person who thought who was basically <laughs> saying, like, I would have checked out of the U.S. Open due to all the pressure. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would probably say that I think it's entirely understandable. Serena Williams does not want to see a tennis racket for the rest of the year. Um, and that's not to say that, like, I think that she will necessarily skip Singapore because that's regardless of 
you know, her ranking point lead yeah. and things like that and how much money she's made. It's a lot of money to leave on the table. And a lot of points. And I don't think and a lot of points. I don't and it's and in and in addition to all that, just the goodwill of one of the things about the the WTA finals that's supposed to be what sets it apart is that these players are supposed to commit to it. I mean, we were talking earlier about Andy possibly not playing the world tour finals and me saying like, Oh, it's no big deal. And yeah, I mean, if, if it's no big deal in a lot of ways, but at the same time, like you want to be able to say that you are delivering to this tournament and to these fans, uh, the best field as possible. And as players, you do on some level have an obligation to be there. And Serena winning three slams this year is a bigger deal. And being number one is a bigger deal to WTA than Andy Murray is to ATP. Yes. For that event, for sure. For that event, for sure. Exactly right. I mean, you know, like that that's why I was saying, like, with respect to the World Tour Finals, like, they have Roger and Roger will deliver the crowds. You know, like it's no big deal. But um with Serena, if she doesn't if she isn't there. So, you know, we talk a lot about like wanting to see players older and younger support the tour. And I, I would be very surprised if Serena didn't like if she decided not to like play Singapore. Yeah, I'd be surprised. She doesn't obviously need to do it, like, you know, like whatever. But um it would be an incredibly, in a lot of ways, magnanimous thing to like show up and play. And maybe and, like, and maybe part you. of her doesn't want to end the year on the US Open. Well, that's a good point. I mean, she's done it before, like in twenty eleven. She shut it down for US Open when she lost in the final to Stoser. She didn't play again that year. Um yeah. but she also wasn't in the Singapore qualifying position that year. Uh, so yeah, we'll see. I think I, I bet she'll be there. And, uh, but I, like I said, I don't think she's going to, I'm definitely think she, go, not going to Wuhan was the right call. Although I remember last year, Serena said, um, famously in her post US Open press, uh, round table, she said, I don't have time for love. I have to go to Wuhan. Yep. Do you think now that she has time for love? Well, I think that she never entered Wuhan in the first place. So I know, I know. I'm like just, I'm just like wondering. Called an audible after the U.S. Open. I'm not talking about all that stuff. I'm just wondering. I hope. I don't I, care. I hope so. You know, it, the, it, the, it, the, the less I, the less I ever have to talk about Drake, the better my life is. So I didn't mention him. I was just I, opt I was out. talking abstractly. Yeah. Okay. Um, speaking of Serena, not directly, but I think I know where this is going. Question from Patty, um, who asks, which tennis player has the nicest dog? And I've never met a tennis player's dog. Courtney, I think you have one interaction to speak of. Yeah, I held Chip. I had to take care of Chip for a brief 20 minutes uh, in Rome once. Chip Williams. He's a, he's a perfectly nice dog. Quite the little gentleman. Pretty chill, actually, which I quite liked. He wasn't like a really... And ever, anybody who's like seen pictures or video of him, he's a, he's a distinguished little gentleman. Can, and I appreciate that. He's a snappy dresser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wears a tie well. He does. And and the, and the Superman outfit is also, also incredible. Very good. Um, here's another question from Nikki, who asked to switch to the men for a bit. We've been neglecting them for a while here. How good are Novak and Rafa's chances to break Roger's 17 slam record? Novak won the U.S. We didn't talk too much about Novak going forward after our last show, but Novak is now at 10 slams. Um, we got other questions about this is a weak ATP era. Or not. So if you want to roll that into your thinking, go right ahead. But do you think I think I think that Novak is on pace to pass Rafa, I will say. If Novak is at ten, Rafa's at fourteen. Um on their current trajectories, I would say that Novak is I would definitely project to finish ahead of Rafa when they both are done. Fed, I don't know. Fed's a long way. 
seven is a lot. But we'll see. Do you have any thoughts, feelings? Yeah, no, I agree with no, I agree with that. I mean, I I think that you know from here on out that Novak is going to win more majors than Rafa. Like, just sure. in terms of, like, from, you know, so can he close that gap on Rafa? Absolutely. Because, if I guess, I mean, yeah, I don't know if I like the weak era argument with respect to the ATP because any era is going to look weak after the era that they've been in. Like, you, any, anything that's, like, less than the golden era is, like, oh, how disappointing, which is, like, an incredibly unfair, <laughs> I think, take. Um, it, of course things are going to normalize because the four, well, the three men <laughs> that have, like, you know, ruled this tour with an iron fist have been superhuman in a lot of ways. I mean, what they've been doing is just absolutely incredible. And and to say that like now it's a weak era is just, I don't know. That's that I think, I think that's incredibly insulting to, to whoever dominates the tour here on out. And I think that in, in general, that is very particular to Novak. I think that's insulting to Novak. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think that he will, He'll definitely pass Rafa, I think I will definitely say, um, barring, you know, a freak Thomas Musterian, you know, accident or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and because when you really look at it from a slam by slam basis, who's challenging him? That's what I was going to say. Weak error or not, I think what's really going on right now is that Novak is peaking this year in particular, 2015, the time when very few other guys were peaking. Like, I mean, obviously Roger was playing well, especially second half of the year at the slams and he made two finals, but Novak is just at a time when Rafa is clearly at a downswing, which time will tell if he gets out of or not. Uh, Federer's past his peak. Murray is playing, was playing pretty well, but not at the peak of his powers either. And Novak in terms of racking up scoreboard did a pretty damn good job getting three out of four slams this year. I mean, this is the kind of year where you look at, if you're talking about all time record chasing, and if he had left more than one of those other ones on the table, you see it as a huge opportunity lost. But he, he converted when he had the chance and won the slams he was quote-unquote supposed to. Uh, and the thing about Novak, though, in, in terms of what he was able to do this year, is that he did it against players who are playing really freaking well. Yeah. Like, Andy Murray is in, is having one of the best seasons of his career. Roger Federer, obviously, I mean, back-to-back slam finals, that ain't too shabby. And he didn't necessarily play those slam finals terribly. Or And he's played generally pretty darn good tennis all season. You know, it's not like Rote Novak, you know, tore through in a year where everybody sucked. Like, not everybody was yeah. having a rough a year. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, no. and, and on top of that, you have Stan, who's who's challenging there. Kaney Shikori, who obviously kind of sem- marginally unproven. But when he's there, he's great. He's so up and down, though. Okay. Yeah, he's so okay. up and down, but like his quality yeah. um, is is unquestionable when, when he's playing well. You know, he can challenge any of them on any given day on any surface. Sure. So, did, did Novak play K? I'm just wondering, did Novak play K this year? I can't remember them playing. I don't remember them playing. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Maybe like a Rome or Madrid, but I don't remember them playing K and yeah, Novak. But... Not Madrid. Anyway, yeah. Anyways, um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's that's the thing that's so impressive about what Novak's done. It's that it, he hasn't. If you want to have this discussion about weak eras, I suppose we can have it once like this golden era is done. Yeah. But right now, what he just did, he didn't do it against a weak era. He no. did it against like the best of his era who are playing, you know, really well. And if you pick, compare it to Serena this year, they both won three slams. But in terms of like seeds they played. Draws didn't break for Novak the way they broke for Serena. Yeah, that's uh, very. Exciting. I mean, I mean, I I still think that what Serena did this year is more impressive. Mounting pressure, doing the first three in a row, all that stuff. 
I'd pick Serena on my ballot for who had a better year if anyone's asking and people have been asking. Um, but Novak went the hard way through it. I mean, Serena has some draws that arguably opened up for her, including us open. Um, but we got another question on Novak from John R, which goes a little bit to what we were talking about before, but it's sort of a more solutions-oriented question, which I like. Uh, John R's absolute favorite player is Novak Djokovic, and he says, it kills me knowing how little love Novak gets from the crowd. So my question is, what does Novak have to do, if anything, to gain more love and support among tennis fans and crowds and tournaments? Does it have to take Roger and Rafa to retire in order for that to happen? So we talk about Novak not having the crowds and why, but is there something Novak can do to change it? If you were like Novak's consultant on this, what would, what would you tell him? How does he do just, it? Just keep winning. Yeah. I think, yeah. I, think- I, I, I don't think that it's his responsibility to, you know, be a, I don't know like I, this whole discussion about the Novak situation is like I find it exhausting because mm-hmm. on the one level I'm like who the hell cares if I'm Novak I shouldn't care but you obviously know that he does care anybody who says that Novak Djokovic doesn't care what the crowd thinks is like completely FOS and you don't know Novak yeah. he, abs- he cares absolutely so much and I think at the end of the day that that's probably something that just from a human perspective, people pick up on and then you like almost intentionally withhold your love because somebody wants it so badly. Yeah. It's like a very cruel human behavior that it's is so, common. It's so true in because, life. because Federer is so doesn't look like he cares at all. Exactly. Like Federer is so is relatively the icy one on court. You know, he's the one who is restrained and not really playing up to the crowd almost ever. Maybe some shot selection occasionally, if you want to say that. That's within points. I mean, he's not like gesturing to the crowd and pumping them up the way that like the Del Potro does, or even like a Roberta Vinci. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely true. And I think the other thing with Novak he can do is just get older. I mean, I think as mm. right now, time will, time will take care of it. And the same way it did a little bit for Serena, you know, Serena's yep. more popular now with the crowds than ever. Look a at Leighton. Yeah. Leighton. How much do we, for, I mean, like people just completely forget that Leighton was an absolute jerk. Like when he was like, a, you know, like 25, 26, 27, like he was terrible. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, time just will take care of it. And as he, and it, and this has nothing to do with Novak. Like I would never say like time because Novak needs to mature. No, like tennis fans need to mature as well. Tennis fans need to accept the, the, a different landscape. Tennis fans don't do well with change. I mean, there's a lot, there's so many different things. And the thing about, about Roger is that he's just always given people an alternative to cheer for. And he's an easy person to cheer for. Like, you know, you can play John Isner in the middle of America and people are still rooting for the guy. And it just, it doesn't really sometimes makes sense but at the same time like that's totally fine too i mean that's a great thing but i yeah i just i just feel like with novak just like just kind of keep just doing what you're doing he's done nothing wrong really i mean people can cherry pick like oh that one time he yelled at a crowd in serbian and some people knew what it meant like no like you can't pick that is not why crowds are booing no not at all no one knows that story i'm sorry and arthur ash maybe like a hundred people you can't (laughs) cherry you can cherry pick things for any player to make a case against them that is as strong or oftentimes a lot stronger Agreed. on why you shouldn't like somebody that people don't quote unquote, don't like Novak Djokovic. And the other thing with Djokovic is that in terms of his narrative right now as a player, it's not super compelling because he's no. number one and has been number one for a while and looks like he's going to stay number one. 
And so, and there's not like a journey people are on with him at all. Like Federer is trying to get back to the top and try to have one last sip of, of championship glory. You know, Serena was trying to go for history and is sort of also on the tail end of her career. Murray's always been this lovable loser underdog. Rafa's this explosive, you know, whatever Rafa thing is. And now getting to be a little bit more of an underdog. But Rafa also didn't always have the most. He also was, unlike Federer, would have underdog crowd support against him that Federer never does. Yeah, um, no, was true. That, and, that is definitely true. And for Novak, doesn't have any of those things going in his favor. So once he gets older and like falls off the top spot, then he'll get the love. But in the meantime, like you said, he doesn't shouldn't worry about that. He shouldn't be tanking in order to be more sympathetic. You just keep doing what you do, Novak, and all of the respect and grace will come when it comes. Chase the trophies, not the accolades. Yeah, that's that's the biggest thing. Is like so long as great champions are great champions, and they'll always be, you know. So you know, unless they do something so terrible, I mean, people still love Jimmy Connors, and he was an absolute, you know, John McEnroe, like, yeah. you know, and they are they were so far worse than anything that anyone can accuse Novak Djokovic of. That's first first and foremost. Like, I mean, the guy's completely morphed himself and transitioned into kind of being this statesman and this ambassador. And yeah, maybe that puts people off and maybe that's something that people don't like. And that's the thing too, is like, it's okay if people don't like him. It's not like a, a judgment call on his character, but you're, people are allowed to not like what they don't like. And yeah. you people are allowed to like what they like. And it's just this policing whole idea. It is, policing of, is bad. Yeah. And this whole idea of like, oh, he, but he should, you know, he's won this many majors and he should at least be like, you know, 60% as liked as Roger or something. I'm like, why? Like, you know, <laughs> like, like, you know, like it just is what it is. And this, but I do think that on some level, like we kind of not, we, but like the media does make a little too much about it. Like it's, it's just, it is what it is. He has his fans. He has his, his fervent fans. Roger Federer is an anomaly. He's a sports anomaly. He just, the way that he is as a sportsman and the, the love that he gets he is not the standard he is an anomaly he's the outlier not just and so the fact that everyone thinks that like roger is somehow the standard bearer that is unfair to the entire field the crowd would have been the same in the u.s open final if it had been federer chillich if yep. chillich won the semifinal or if it had been who else did Djokovic play federer like lopez in the final yep. wouldn't have been any more for wouldn't have been drastically more for lopez than it was for federer lopez would have been a huge underdog the same with chillich um, but yeah, no, it's, this is about Federer and in the same way it's about Malfeast when it's Isner Malfeast. I mean, the other guy matters too. Djokovic, I mean, I do think it is worth remarking on being in that stadium for that final. It was shocking. Like I've never been in a crowd that lopsided almost for anything. And so it is, it is worth remarking on, but should it be this huge existential crisis for Novak and or his fans? I mean, just his scoreboard and move on. I just think that it's rem- it's it's worth remarking on absolutely because when you're reporting on a match and you're reporting on an event, you want to give a sense of like a, a sense of place and a sense and a feel yeah. of what it was like. Do I think that every single person who writes about tennis needs to write a freaking think piece about why everybody hates Novak Djokovic? No, I don't think that that's necessary at all. I just don't think that it's like it really matters in the big scheme of things. Um, and that to address that issue at all, it takes to say something new about it i just i just don't think that i actually read anything new about it he's like oh well he, he's the third guy and everybody loves roger and everybody loves rafa and he's you know it's like yeah this is all the same as 2008 as it is now yeah 
like nothing's changed. So unless you can like add something to the conversation to change the perspective, it's just like you're just writing, you're just adding to this like idea that everybody hates Novak Djokovic. And I don't think that's true at all. I would agree. We certainly don't. So thank you guys very much for listening to this episode of No Challenges Remaining. One, two, three. If you want to follow along with us when you're not listening, you can do so by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com slash no challenges remaining. You can also follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. If you want to send us a question for an upcoming show, we'll be taking more questions throughout the fall. Um, please do so on Twitter, on Facebook, or best of all, on email, no challenges remaining at gmail.com. Send us any questions, comments, queries, anything. Happy to read it. And then if you want to subscribe to the show and get new episodes delivered automatically every Tuesday when we come out, you can do so by subscribing on your RSS podcast app of choice, whatever it is, and on iTunes. And on iTunes, you can leave us reviews, and we like that, and that's cool. Courtney, what do you got on your mind for today's Rant Rave Corner? What do I have on my mind? Um, Okay. Um, I would like to rave about well i'll start broad from a conceptual basis then go down um but i wanted to rave about the process and the activity of going to listen to creative people talk i had a feeling this was coming yeah i know um so last night i went with um my two cousins to a um an event at the jewish community center in san francisco um, that was basically like a panel with um, Roman Mars, who's the host of 99% Invisible, one of my favorite podcasts and one of Ben's favorite podcasts as well. So good. I know. You love it. Um, Glenn Washington, who's the host of Snap Judgment, which is another podcast on NPR, which is amazing. Um, and Jessica Abel, who wrote a um, graphic comic uh, about how to make good radio. Um, and it's great. It's called Out on the Wire. And, um, and yeah, it was just an hour and a half of listening to these people talk about their processes and, you know, how they got to where they were and the current status of public radio, the current status of podcasts, um, where they see it moving to the future and just their own creative process of coming up with the products that they currently work on. So 99PI and Snap Judgment. And there is nothing more inspiring than these sorts of talks, like it's just whether it's like I've gone to lectures from by musicians, by writers, by yeah radio per- personalities. Um, I listen to podcasts that are interviews with the same sorts of creatives and pe- you know um, comedians and yeah um, Mark Maron and stuff. Yeah, yeah, Mark Maron exactly, or even like Fresh uh, Fresh Air with Terry Gross, like listening to you know people just talk about their like you know people who have been pretty successful at a certain thing talk about their lives. Like it's it's pretty great and. Um, And what I love about it is that I always leave so energized and jazzed to go create a thing. Like they they do an incredible, like going to these events, like and most communities will have them, like, you know, authors coming to bookstores and doing readings and Q&A sessions. And um, so there's a lot of writers, musicians, things like that. You can find them in your local communities. Um, But even if you don't know, I mean, don't know anything about the person, just hearing them talk about their creative process, that I love. And I I find that to be really, really fascinating. And it was just a really, really lovely evening, super nerdy, one of the nerdier things, like one of the nerdier crowds, because it was all public radio people. I'm sure. Which in San Francisco, which is like a definite demographic um, of folk. Uh, 
but yeah, I it was really, really fun. It was very cool. And I highly recommend Jessica Abel's book, Out on the Wire, which I'm enjoying immensely. If you're interested in like radio and public radio and just storytelling, um, not just via radio and podcasts, but even as a writer and stuff like that, it's really, really great. Awesome. So there you go. That sounds all good. And obviously recommend all those podcasts, especially 99% Invisible. I'll re-recommend again. It's just so lovely. Was Radio's, was Roman's, sorry, voice as bedroomy during this talk as it is on the show? If they had, like, turned up his mic a little bit more, it would have been. Like, but the weird thing is that you're so used to hearing Roman, like, literally, in, like, Roman Mars has the best voice in all of podcasting and radio. It, like, so if that does, if that is not the hook for you to download an episode of 99% Invisible, that should be your hook. Because it's just, it's delicious, his voice. <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. I don't know. I don't um, know if, I don't, I wouldn't say that I, it was a little bit of a learning curve for me for this. Because it is, like, weirdly better me his voice so I had to, like, it is i had to like sort of consent to it i feel like more than i do oh for sure voices. yeah but it was in it but he was actually talking about this whole idea of like when you with public radio specifically though with podcasting that like you are the moment that person puts their headphones in their ears they are inviting you in yeah like it's such an active um process of listening to a podcast it's not just like radio in the background uh, it's not white noise. You are actually listening and choosing to listen. And so because of that, you have a responsibility to your listener to craft a certain soundscape and really envelop them and, and bring them into things. And so with Roman Mars and his voice, like what you what what I definitely found, I was telling Ben about this um, when I got home, like it, there's so much intention in what he does and how he crafts 99% invisible. And that includes his voice. So, but yeah, like I'm so used to hearing them in hearing him in my head that hearing him via PA speakers in like a lecture hall, it was almost like Roman, where are you? Why are you so far away? Come here. <laughs> no, it's true. Cause I, podcasting is so personal it, yep. as, as what people consume it. It really is. So there you go. My story is also personal. Mine's much shorter. But that doesn't, but not, not that yours is too long at all. Um, on Sunday, I got bored. I thought about doing this for a while during a Steelers game to actually intentionally, because for those of you who haven't heard this before, I get mistaken quite a bit online, but less than I used to, but still quite a bit for Ben Roethlisberger, who's the Steelers quarterback. On and Twitter, you should say. On not Twitter. In, well, not in real life. No. Although well, sometimes on, with credentials, yeah, it gets people, confusing. People like remark. Like, anytime like I show my ID to somebody like getting onto like the bus home or something. They'll be like, oh, Ben Roethlisberger. They're like, almost, it happens often in like that situation. Uh, but anyway, so I decided it'd be fun to switch my avatar and display name on Twitter to Ben Roethlisberger for during the Steelers game to see like how much more I would get if people were actually searching for me. And that was coming up as a legitimate result. But within, and I sort of like, so like, okay, I'm going to try an experiment here. And then tweeted like, and done. And so I tweeted two things that had like, that then quickly switched to being from quote unquote Ben Roethlisberger in his Steelers jersey looking all happy. And immediately like rats off a ship, I started losing followers <laughs> like so fast, so fast. Like it was, I had lost like 30 within two minutes. And then I think by the time I, by the time I pulled the plug, it was like 75 in like 15 or 20 minutes. And what it taught me is that people follow this is stupid i really this whole thing is really stupid now that i'm coming to the conclusion of this people like like me for me and don't want ben roethlisberger and it was sort of a nice sort of 
it was, I felt really stupid after having done it. But then it was like a nice heartwarming moment where it's like, oh, people like me because I'm not Ben Roethlisberger. And if I was Ben Roethlisberger, these particular 75 people would want nothing to do with me. And so I don't know. It was sort of heartwarming in a weird way. I'll probably never get those followers back, those particular ones. And I don't blame them for unfollowing me because I would unfollow Ben Roethlisberger too. But just know people out there, people like you for you. And if you try to be some famous person for a while, you know, people don't want that. People just want you. So you do you. And don't be Ben Roethlisberger. Be somebody else, at least, if you're going to try a celebrity because he's kind of lame. He's kind of terrible. He's terrible. That's also part of it. Yeah, he does do terrible things. The name association went downhill quickly for me at one point. He allegedly does terrible things. He allegedly does terrible things in Atlanta restrooms, yes. Allegedly. Oh, well. But thank you guys legitimately and verifiedly for listening. We'll see you guys next week. Courtney will be in Wuhan next week already? In the woo. Wow. Yeah, I leave on Thursday. Wow. I'm hoping that I get to see Lee Nas baby. <laughs> That's my big thing. That's a really good goal. Can you That's get... really like the whole point of going. Can... I was like, yeah, 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 I'll do my job. But can I be, please be allowed to get there early enough to see Lena? Can yeah. you get Lena's baby as the next guest on the show? I will try. That's your goal. I'm going to try. That's your mission. And see our Wuhan correspondent. <laughs> this is Courtney Nguyen reporting live from Wuhan, China. And with that, we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye-bye. She likes me for me. Because I sing like Pavarotti Or because I'm such a hottie I like her for her Not because she's fat like Cindy Crawford She has got so much to offer Why does she waste all her time with me? There must be something there that I don't see